This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I sit down with Joseph Molina Flynn. Joseph Molina Flynn is an attorney who heads the Rhode Island Latino Political Action Committee. Mr. Flynn has been a prominent advocate for immigrant rights, which in many ways was one of the overarching themes of our conversation. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the Bartholomew Town Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You may also find each of my in-depth interviews with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and beyond at BartholomewTown.com. All right, let's get right to it. My conversation with Joseph Molina Flynn, which we began by discussing the recently concluded election 2018 right here in Rhode Island. Uh, So first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invite. Uh, As you mentioned, this election was certainly an eye-opening one for a lot of people. I think that more than anything, this election sort of serves as a referendum on the president's policies. Uh, I think Rhode Islanders noticed that the last time that we had an election two years ago, People sat out um, and there were repercussions. And so this time, obviously, they got the message and they turned out in record numbers. Right. So the 2006 election saw a wider turnout. uh, But the turnout this year, particularly given the weather on Election Day, was really, really positive. As for the Latinx agenda specifically, I do think that politicians gave a little bit more thought to how the community should be addressed. I think certainly uh, with regard to the Annie Casey study on the educational outcomes for Latinx students in the state, it sort of informed politicians in the state that the Latino community cares about more than just immigration. And they started talking to us in earnest about other things that matter to us, uh, such as like education, healthcare, jobs, um, and all of the other things that people in general care about, right? Uh, They also, I believe, started to notice from conversations that I had with them that All uh, Latinx individuals in the state of Rhode Island can't be painted with a broad brush. Uh, There are different factions. There are people with different ideologies. Uh, Certainly, you know, within the community, there's a big divide between progressive ideals and um, a more conservative upbringing, particularly when it comes to a church upbringing and women's right to choose and things of that nature. So it's a little bit more nuanced than people have been given us credit for in the past. Uh, and I think this year, politicians really started to pay attention to that. Was there a particular candidate or ultimately elected official that kind of seemed the most authentic in reaching the community and delivering that message to the broader statewide voting population. I think uh, Governor Raimondo was really honest about the efforts that her office has made over the past four years uh, in helping the Latinx community, but she also recognized sort of where some of her failures were. Uh, And I think you know, sort of outside of the spectrum of the Latinx community, I think Governor Raimondo did a great job of that all around, of saying, this is where I've failed, and I recognize that I've had some failures. 
And it's not often that you see politicians that are ready and willing to admit their failures. And ultimately, I think that's why she pulled through in such a great number, uh, because people appreciated her honesty. They appreciated that she's had to make some really difficult decisions, but that she also recognizes where there's room for improvement, right? She's not sort of throwing her hands up and saying, this happened in the past and that's where it should stay. She's recognizing that her office needs to move things forward and she's going to use the next four years to do that. I, I at least am fairly confident that she'll be able to do that. Um, and Lieutenant Governor McKee also had a very honest approach um, to the way that he addresses the Latinx community. He's always surrounded himself with people from diverse backgrounds, even going back to when he was the mayor of Cumberland. Uh, he's had diverse hiring practices in his office as lieutenant governor, even though his office isn't too big. You see more people of color in that office than you do in some of the others. And so, um, and he also was really earnest talking about uh, small business impact and what his office has been doing to help the small business community and recognizes that in helping the small business community, there's a lot of assistance to the Latinx community just by virtue of the sort of work that they take on. And certainly, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Secretary of State Nelly Gorbea, uh, who has been a wonderful advocate for the Latinx community. I've had a lot of opportunity to share with her on different um, bills and things that she's sort of considering or considered and introduced at the legislature. And um, she just got to... Yeah, for sure has made news right now. She's being thrown into the fire with this voter birth date uh, identification business. It's become fodder for conservative talk radio, really. It's not as if everyone's talking about it at the grocery store or anything. But I just want to go back to Lieutenant Governor McKee quickly because I I agree. I, I met the Lieutenant Governor was one of the first people that came on this program when it began earlier this year. And, you know, I, I shortly thereafter interviewed uh, former Representative Regenberg, and I thought they both had great ideas. But as the campaign wore on, I found the way that Lieutenant Governor McKee was painted, um, largely by the outside forces involved in that race, was really not only inaccurate, but was unacceptable. Because when you do look at the hiring practices, and if you go back to the lieutenant governor's work on the basketball court, these are practical ways to uplift people that he's demonstrated. So, it, you know, that, that's something that it made, when I look back on this entire election season, I wonder how much the identity politics card was used improperly at times when it really should have been more, hey, policy, single-payer health care or not. You know, not here's a monster versus somebody who's a great person. I agree. And, um, it, you know, I think that Lieutenant Governor McKee did make some controversial statements about immigration. And sometimes, you know, I've been doing this now for a year. I've been the head of the Latino PAC for a year. And sometimes when you're under pressure... And in the heat of a moment, you say things that you wish you could take back at a later opportunity. Uh, and he's he was very honest when he spoke with our pack about that statement and what he really meant by it. Um, and yeah, sure, he wishes he could have given a more nuanced answer. But in that moment, he was being asked a very specific question. Um, 
And, and I do think he was maligned. And But I think, look, in all credit to Representative Regenberg, mm-hmm. uh, he's still a representative after all. He is a great individual. I think that was the reason that the race was so tight, is they were both really good candidates. And you would have benefited from either one of them being in that office. And I think Representative Regenberg, if he chooses to stay in Rhode Island or come back to Rhode Island, um, the rumor is he's going to law school elsewhere. Uh, if he comes back after that, then um, he certainly has a very bright future ahead of him and will be very fortunate to have him. I have nothing negative to say about him. Um, I just think ultimately when we made our endorsement decision, it did come down to the fact that Lieutenant Governor McKee has had two decades of experience, executive experience. He has done a great job in terms of developing the small business arm of the lieutenant governor's office. Um, And we're hopeful that he will continue to do that. And he also has always reached out to the Latinx community. It wasn't a disingenuous effort to reach voters, which you often see with campaigns. It was, it's been an honest and heartfelt, um, connection to the community that he's had and so uh but i i do agree that there was a little bit of um of mischaracterization of the lieutenant governor i don't think it was directly by uh representative regenberg um some of it was but not particularly the stuff that we're talking about with the latinx community right um but Overall, that was a good race. It was a good race to watch. It was the only race on election night, uh, on primary night, that um, kept us going past like totally. the 8 o'clock hour. Um, and so it was the most fun race to watch in September. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we, we were covering the election that night with the podcast and... We ended up just going back and forth between the old Colony Bar and La Arepa, just back and forth between the Regenberg and McKee headquarters mm-hmm. um, up and down North Main Street. That was the center of Rhode Island politics for that evening, for sure. Right. Um, definitely, yeah, as you mentioned, a race that in either case, you had two qualified candidates, and that's why they had the type of support they did. So really interesting stuff. Absolutely. What's the – well, let's let's go through your background briefly, if you don't mind. Um you know, obviously, you're an attorney. Where did you study law? Uh, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor for law school. Very interesting. And where did, did you grow up in New England? I grew up in Rhode Island, yeah. yeah. So I actually, um, I was born in Columbia. Mm-hmm. I came to the United States when I was nine. I was an undocumented immigrant when I came to the United States. I... Um, then went to Johnson and Wales for undergrad at night. Um, I went through the Pawtucket public school system. Mm. Um, I went to Johnson Wales at night for undergrad. And then when I graduated there, um, I ended up going to the university of Michigan for law school. So that's the only time that I've spent like really away from Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Good to certainly go away to somewhere like that though. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no question (laughs) that it re readjusts your, your perception of the United States and of humanity. I'm sure. Agreed. Um, so the university of Michigan is obviously like a great law school. It's in the top 10 law schools in the country. And that's the reason that I went. Um, but it was certainly very interesting to see, um, Ann Arbor is sort of like this liberal gem in the middle of, um, a not so liberal (laughs) state. Um, it's like a giant situate. Right. (laughs) And, um, you know, being gay, Latinx, married to a man and living um, in a very conservative state was sort of a weird part of my life. Uh, When you stepped outside of Ann Arbor, uh, 
it, you certainly were aware that you were in a different world. Um, and so when I came back here, I decided to get involved uh, and practice immigration law because of my background, uh, but also to get more involved in the communities so that other people who are growing up don't have to experience sort of the same hatred that um, I may have had to experience at one point or another, although that's becoming a little more difficult now with the rhetoric coming from the top. It certainly has gotten much more extreme. Um, I think one thing a lot of people don't realize, I'm married to a Brazilian woman, and, uh, you know, how, you know, when you hear the anti-immigrant or anti-illegal immigration, that's in quotes, um, people, you know, I don't think people realize how difficult it is to legally immigrate to the United States and the, the, the cost, the money involved and the documentation, the process is, especially if English is not your first language or especially if you don't speak English very much at all. I mean, that's something that is lost in this entire discussion, to, in my opinion. So it is, and it, I think it's lost on purpose. I think it's lost because people don't want to pay attention to that. Because when their ancestors came to the United States, it was easy, right? All you had to do was get on a boat, get on a plane, make your way over here. You signed the book. I, I mean, I'm being like facetious, right. right? But that was essentially all that was required back prior to the 1960s in order to legally immigrate to the United States. I um, So when I talk about my own background, I often talk about the fact that when I was growing up in Medellin, Colombia, Medellin was the most violent city in the world at that time. I um, witnessed multiple people murdered in front of me. I was six, seven years old, um, including, uh, well, I didn't witness my uncle get murdered, but he was murdered and I saw his body soon thereafter with like bullet holes through the head. So when my family decided to come to the United States, it wasn't about coming on a vacation and staying. It was about like we were fleeing for our lives, right? And that's what a lot of these people who are in Central America now are doing in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Sure, there are a couple of people who sneak by that may be part of the problem rather than escaping the problem. But there are ways to address that. And the immigration system is very unforgiving of anybody who ends up in that system who has had ties to um, any gangs or any terrorist organizations or whatever you want to call them. And so the way to deal with the influx of people isn't by implementing all these harsh policies. It's actually by making the policies more accessible, um, easier to navigate, so that it, if I'm in Guatemala, say, and I know that in order for me to legally immigrate into the United States as a refugee, it's only going to take a few months to a year. I may be more willing to do that than to come here and spend God knows how many years undocumented. But if that's not an option, then what do you do, right? You're right. like It's literally a life and death situation. And people don't want to pay attention to that because that causes them to like reach down into their souls and really think about the humanity of people. And people don't want to do that because it's easier to just make these grand pronouncements about what's right and what's wrong without concerning yourselves with the micro of the actual individual who's making that decision at that specific moment in time.
I totally agree. I, I've been horrified by some of the Facebook comments and things I've seen. You know, I've generally generally tried to let the Trump stuff roll off my back. You know, it's easier for me to say as a white cis male um, and, you know, somebody who has grown up in an area that was rural that definitely was Trumpian in nature and was bullied for walking on my toes or whatever it may be. So I'm you you know I guess I have a little bit of that Teflon you know what I mean but with this issue it's it's hard to imagine how anyone cannot just just broadly with the the world areas of the world collapsing or that have never even existed really in any kind of solid way people trying to flee that and improve their lives I don't know how anybody can't be empathetic to that and start at that point and then work from there it's shocking it is but you also I mean so you can't necessarily fault people either. And here's why. When you think about where this rhetoric is coming from, right? So you have the president of the United States making these like really awful pronouncements about who these people are. We heard him talk about the caravan in ways that were very dehumanizing. He said it was infiltrated by people from the Middle East. And, um, you know, the Middle East is obviously, for him, synonymous with terrorism. Um, he said that it was infiltrated by people who are members of MS-13 and all of this, right? And so if you think about... You're an uninformed individual who doesn't know anything about the immigration system, who doesn't know any of these requirements. The president is certainly not telling you any of that. He's just telling you there's a right way to do it. And there's these awful people that are coming into the country in this caravan. Then, yeah, of course, they're going to be scared. Um, And that's where the fear mongering leads. And so I don't necessarily fault a lot of the uninformed voters who I do fault is a lot of the politicians for harping on that and for delivering that message like we saw with um, Mayor Fung and his run for governor. He made very specific pronouncements about the immigrant community here in Rhode Island. Um, he has said over and over that the Cranston Police Department will cooperate with ICE and their enforcement capacity, and that if he were elected governor, thankfully he's not, uh, he would deputize the state police to essentially carry out ICE functions. Um, That is feeding into that xenophobia that has been sort of trickled down from the top. Um, And it's based on, it's not based on fact, right? Like he has the one case that he can point to, but how many thousands of people do we have in Rhode Island who are not that one case? Um, And that case has been dealt with. And, you know, I, I just, it's disingenuous to play to people's fears in that way. And I wish that um, people didn't feel the need to resort to that because I'm sure that beyond that, uh, Mayor Fung may have had some great ideas for the state, but focusing on that may have been um, his downfall. Yeah, you get the feeling that he was playing to the Joe Trillo race more than anything else. And I wonder, I've interviewed Mayor Fung a few times. I certainly don't know him that well, but I get the feeling that if you if you really pushed it with him and you said hey you know what guess what no one's listening i promise i won't tell anybody give me your answer on immigration not related to running for office you would think the guy seems soulful enough and he's an an immigrant himself uh, or he's a child of immigrants um you would feel that he would feel that empathy he would hope so but 
it's amazing that they played that up as much as they did. And then Joe Trillo, of course, gets 4% <laughs> in absolute humiliation on election night. Right. I, I mean, thankfully, I, I again, I think it was a referendum on those policies. And um, thankfully, Rhode Island is not quite there yet. Um, yeah. And I hope that we never are. I hope that we continue to engage in an honest conversation about what this debate is really all about. And we're small enough, right? Like, Rhode Island is one media market. We're small enough that we can have these earnest conversations and bring us back to the table on policy that really matters and that we can really impact at the state level. We're not really, with the exception of our congressional delegation, we're not really going to make really big impact on immigration. I, you know, I was very active and very vocal about the DACA bill that passed at the state house last year. That's one way that immigration policy sort of shapes the way that we think about things at the state level. But that bill being passed isn't going to impact the way that like the U.S. Congress thinks about um, immigration policy, right? That affects us locally, but it doesn't affect real immigration policy change. Um, and so we need to disconnect a little bit more from that conversation and start thinking about how to bring the state forward in the states that in the issues that we can actually impact the state on. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it does. Yeah, I wonder, like Jim Vincent, for example, NAACP, one of their goals is to get more people of color on boards throughout the state you know mm-hmm. the very practical you know not really force fed but essentially hey we're going to we're going to make sure our ideas are heard as a block if you will as a voting block uh, as an identity block whatever it may be do you feel like that's the kind of maneuvering that would be yeah, chipping absolutely. away at the power uh, structure I, I absolutely think so i think you know it, it's really encouraging to see that um we have so many more people of color that are qualified and who are stepping up to uh, represent their communities. For example, uh, a Secretary of State Gorbea, again, um, highest Latina office holder, statewide office holder in New England. Maria Rivera in Central Falls, who's doing a great job as councilwoman there. You have Shelby Maldonado, who is the person who introduced that DACA bill that we just spoke about. Um, Representative Diaz, who's now heading the Democratic caucus, right? Like, all of these things are really important, and having a seat at the table um, is really important. But it's also important to remember uh, what we do with that seat when we get there. We personally... uh, Real Pack was really disappointed to see that of all of the Latinx elected officials, none of them voted against uh, Speaker Mariello's uh, re-election as Speaker. That was really discouraging to us because Speaker Mariello has also perpetuated a lot of this conversation about illegal immigration and driver's licenses specifically. Um, so you would think at least the representative who introduces the driver's license bills might have an issue with him continuing to be speaker. Right. Um, and some of the other newly elected representatives who are not beholden to him because he hasn't done anything for them yet uh, could have voted against him. So we were really disappointed to see that we're not there yet. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of um, fear 
because you don't know what the repercussions are going to be. Once right now, you have to park out and you know <laughs> get a shuttle in or whatever it is. You know, as they yeah, I think they refer to it as Siberia. <laughs> right. Um, so you end up in Siberia, but I, I think there's also there's a need for that. There's a need for people to step up and not only to say. I'm going to represent my community, but also to step up and say, I'm, I'm actually going to be a fearless leader and I'm going to not be beholden to the same old political games that everybody has been beholden to for so long uh, and try to bring our community forward. When you look to the future now, um, obviously Mayor Lorza is in place in Providence. Is he someone that you see as a, a gubernatorial candidate, congressional candidate? How do you how do you see the future laying out? So I think there are. Um, the next election will be very interesting, right? So you have um, Governor Gina Raimondo, uh, Secretary of State Gorbea, Lieutenant Governor McKee, and Treasurer Magaziner, as well as Mayor Lorza, all are termed out. So you would think the majority of them are not just going to hang their hats up and say, I'm done with public service, and they're going to run for something else. What that something else will be remains to be seen. I certainly um, have heard uh, names being thrown into the governor's ring, including Mayor Lorza, Secretary of State, and um, Treasurer Magaziner. I don't know this from any of them personally, right? So I'm not saying that they have told me that they're going to run, but people assume that they're going to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all very uniquely positioned in their public service life. They've all had very different roles. Um, And I think it'll make for a very interesting three-way race if the three of them were to run. Uh, If more people were to run, then it might become a little bit too crowded and you don't know who will end up victorious. But then the same thing is going to play out for the Providence mayor's office. There are a lot of people who are termed out in the city council. You have to wonder what they're going to do. Um, and also some reps that may be thinking about making a run for a different office. And so I think the 2022 race, um, even though I keep laughing just because it's so early to start yeah, thinking we are. about that. <laughs> Three years and 11 um, months out. And we still have one more election in between. <laughs> but the one. 2022 race is going to be very interesting. Yeah, it's certainly something to look forward to. That'll mm-hmm. be the one where you see the the shift, you know, and you think about the in looking back on history, that'll be a big shift for sure. Absolutely. Um, one last area. I, I messaged you earlier this year about Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz. Right. So here's um, what I have to say about that. I met Dr. Munoz. He's obviously a really eloquent, smart, talented individual. I identify with him a lot because he grew up in the Central Falls public school system. And then um, he went on to, I believe it was Rhode Island College, so a local school, and then went to medical school at the University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we followed similar, similar paths, and um, I identify with him a lot. And now he lives down in Kent County, so do I, right? So, like, right. the parallels are there. I identify with him a lot. I like the guy. Um, governor isn't a entry-level position. And um, I think that might have been his mistake, I think that if he had run for some other office, he may have had a better shot. But I don't think that your first time running a campaign for anything, it should be the governor's office because it takes a lot of effort 
and sadly a lot of money to coordinate a statewide campaign. So unless he was going to get, you know, if he had like all of his donors lined up, right? If he had 300 of his closest doctor friends who were lined up to each give him a thousand dollars and then he was right. Like if he was going to generate actual money, then maybe because then you could pay some people to run your campaign to go knocking on every door in the state um, and maybe make some impact. I was really impressed by the fact that he got 5,000 votes considering um, the fact that he was kept off of the debate stages and all of that. I also think he got the 5,000 votes because of that, because that gave him an opportunity to come out and speak out and say, I wasn't invited to debate. I'm not being let on the debate stage. I'm an independent. And people like actually got some traction on his name because um, he wasn't allowed to debate. But I hope that he will consider um, staying in public service. We certainly need diversity of opinions in our electorate, right? There are so many people up on Capitol Hill who are lawyers. We maybe need more doctors yeah, to talk to us about only one, right? Right to talk <laughs> to us about what the healthcare um, crisis looks like in the state of Rhode Island and how we can yeah. improve that. Um, also, like at the city council level, I'm sure that in even though he lives in East Greenwich, but I'm sure that there are issues there that he could take on. That would his background would help inform a difference of opinion at any other level in politics. And then, yeah, sure, later on down the road, maybe run for governor again. Um, he comes from a very interesting background. Uh, his grandfather uh, was a politician in Puerto Rico. He is known as the architect of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. So he's been sort of brought up in this very uh, politically aware family. And I'm sure that he would have nothing but good things to bring somewhere. I just don't think the governor's race this year was the right race. But maybe, you never know with people, right? Maybe his thought was, I get in this race, I get my name out there, I get a little bit of name recognition, and then I can use that to do good somewhere else. Right. And if that was his thought, then expertly played. Um, and like I said, I have nothing negative to say about the guy. Um, I wish him nothing but the best. I'm here uh, to help in whatever way I can. Um and I think that our community is really welcoming to somebody who has his pedigree and um, can really help elevate the voice of the Latino community, right? Um, so I wish him really, like, nothing but the best. I wish him well, and I hope that he will consider staying in public life. As always, thank you for listening to the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.